Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to James, James uh, chapter 5. James is near the end. Uh, It's uh, right before 1 Peter, in case you hadn't been there in a while. So, uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at the wonder of the Incarnation. And in case you are not um, attuned to sort of biblical terminology, the Incarnation is this doctrine, this truth of God becoming flesh. Uh, Jesus, who was at the right hand of God, who created all things, who was called very God of very God, humbled himself and became human. He added to his divinity humanity. So we looked at the wonder of that. Uh, Last week, we looked at the why of the incarnation. Why did Jesus do that? I made a case to you from the book of Hebrews. It's because we needed a hero to rescue us. We need a big brother who will bully the bully of death. And we need a faithful high priest who is sympathetic towards us. And so it was fitting for Jesus to be made like us in every way, yet without sin. So we looked at the wonder, and we looked at the why, and this morning we're going to look at waiting. And in case you hadn't picked up on it, that is alliteration. That's three W's, and we got a fourth W coming on Christmas Day. Why? I want these truths to stick to your hearts like the lint does on your dryer screen. I want you to not lose sight of how wondrous and wonderful and the why and what God is calling us to this morning is to be awaiting people, waiting for the second coming. Have you ever considered this thought that not everyone was surprised by the first coming of Jesus? Some were actually waiting on him to be born. Some actually believed that God would actually do what God said from the opening chapters of the Bible and send a redeemer. And you can see this in Luke chapter 2, and it's roughly 41 days after Jesus has been born. On the eighth day, he is circumcised. And then 33 days after that, according to Leviticus chapter 12, Uh, Mary was ceremonially unclean, and on the 34th day, she would have gone to the temple to offer sacrifices to be pronounced clean, and it is there that we meet a man named Simeon. And here's how Simeon is described in Luke chapter 2. He's described as a righteous and devout man, one who was waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. After Simeon laid eyes on Jesus, he says, Father, you can take me home now. The one that my soul has been waiting for is here, and my eyes have seen him. But then, right after that, we meet a woman, and her name is Anna, and she's a prophetess, and she had been widowed for 84 years. We think that Anna could have been over 100 years old. And she had been widowed for 84 years, and she didn't get remarried. She devoted herself to prayer, worship, and teaching around the temple. 
And in Luke 2, 38, this is what the Bible says. And coming, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting on the redemption of Jerusalem. Not only was she waiting on the redemption by not getting married again, by giving herself to the service of the Lord, but there was a whole section of people waiting on Messiah. They were waiting in faith, even in, unto old age. Those old saints lived their lives at the intersection of the streets called promise and fulfillment. And they pitched their tent and they waited and they waited. And one day their waiting gave way to wonder. One day their waiting was transformed into consolation. Waiting does not come easy to me. I'm impatient. I almost dropped out of seminary because I, I could do the work. It just took too long, right? When I got married, my mother-in-law says, I want you to wait until she finishes pharmacy school, which was a year. And we almost just got married. And I, I don't wait well, I'm telling you. It's a weakness of mine. And perhaps it's a weakness of yours. And then Advent comes year after year. And we all wait. We're waiting on Christmas Day to come. We're waiting to send that last email of 2022. We're waiting to log off of the computer. We're waiting to take that last final and graduate. We're waiting to wrap that final gift. We're waiting to work that last shift before we rest. We're waiting on Christmas break to come. But if we listen, Waiting on these things, they're actually pointing us to something deeper. What we're really waiting on is Jesus to return. We're waiting for redemption that was started to be completed. We're waiting to be made new. We're waiting to see the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We're waiting for the day of the Lord. If Jesus is coming back, which he is, I don't want us to only wait on it. I want us to wait well, like these Old Testament saints, to wait well. And so I want to look at this passage this morning. It's written by Jesus' half-brother, and his name is James. Look, let's look at it in the text. James chapter 5, verse 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard about the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we give our hearts to you right now and our minds and our schedules and our persons. And we pray that you will speak to us. Speak through your servant. Father, I pray that you'd forgive me my sins. They are many. And I pray that you will continue to make me a believer and a doer and a lover of you and your good news. And I pray that for our people, make us lovers of the truth. Make us believers of the truth. And may these things change us and change how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. I got three points for you. The first is Jesus is returning to complete what he started. That's the first point. Now, you'll notice in our passage that James actually says it. He says, the Lord is coming. He says it again. He says it in verse 7. And he also says that in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is profound because if you know anything about James and his relationship to Jesus, James was not always a believer. If you go back and read Mark chapter 3, Jesus' brothers and mother went to a house to seize Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. You might remember when uh, they went, they, uh, the, the, they said, hey, your mother and, and family, they're out there. And Jesus says, Who, who's my mother and who's my brother? He says, you guys are my brother. You guys are my mother's. If you're sitting around me being discipled, those are my real mothers. Jesus did not commend himself to his earthly family at that moment. You might also remember that from the cross, Jesus is dying. And some of his last words is to the apostle John. And he tells John, he says, John, behold your mother. And he was talking about Mary. And he says, Mary, Behold your son. And he was talking about John. And then John tells us that Mary did not even go home with her biological children. It says she went home with John. Now, why? Because we don't believe that James, who actually became a pillar of the church later, he didn't always believe in Jesus. And here you have James who's now saying, he's coming back. My half-brother, who is also the Lord, he's coming back. And this is consistent with biblical, historical, confessional theology. Here's what I mean. Every Bible-believing church, if it's truly a church, embraces the second return of Jesus. You can't read the Bible fully and rightly and that not loom very large in the scriptures. Now, as an example, Acts chapter 1, Jesus was raised. 
He hung around for 40 days. And then it says that you will receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when he said these things, he was taken up in a cloud and taken out of their sight. And the disciples were gazing into heaven, looking at Jesus. And then two men dressed in white came to them and says, hey, why are y'all staring at him leaving? Didn't he just say there is work for you to do while he is gone? And that is to be his witnesses. And by the way, he is returning the same way he left. And so when Arthur sings, behold, he comes riding on a cloud, what we're talking about is that theology, right? You read Paul, who says, for this we declare to you from, by a word from the Lord, that Christ will descend with the cry of the command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with him. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Or Peter. Peter says in 2 Peter, some will say, where is the promise of God? But do not overlook this day, beloved, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years with the Lord is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you think. Rather, he's being patient that you might not perish, because his desire is not that anyone would perish. Or Hebrews, Christ appeared once to bear the sins of many. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting, 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 waiting upon him. A Revelation 1, Steve read it this morning. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even the ones who pierced him. They're dead. But the ones who pierced him, somehow the second coming of Jesus will be transchronological. And it will be transcontinental. Doesn't matter what age you lived in, you're going to see him. Doesn't matter where you died and where you're buried, where you're alive, it will be a visible miracle. It's in our Apostles' Creed. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who was conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And when you keep reading that, you know what the Apostles' Creed also says? He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus' own mouth, Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man shall return. It will be like the days of Noah. They will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And one will be swept away and one will be taken. You catch it? These writers are writing to different audiences under different circumstances, but they are unified saying the same thing. Christ is coming back. And there is continuity. The same Christ who left is the same Christ who's returning. He left going up into the clouds. He's returning through the clouds. And there is discontinuity. He isn't coming to deal with sin. You can't get ready when Jesus comes. 
you got to be ready. You can't trust in him when he returns. You got to trust in him now. He's not coming as a needy infant. He's coming as a conquering king. He's not coming as a lamb. He's coming as a lion. Why is this emphasized so much and by James? It's because it's easy to think that he isn't returning. It's easy like Demas to let the cares of this world cloud the beautiful return of Jesus. It's easy, right? I was in my phone this week and I said, let me see how far my calendar goes. You ever just got your iPhone out? and went to the calendar app and clicked on a year. I said, let me just see, what, how long will this thing just go? And I just sat there going through years, just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And I got to the year 3064. And I, got, I'm, I just sat there and just went through it. 3064. And I found Wednesday, February the 12th, and you know what it actually says on my calendar on Wednesday, February the 12th of 3064, you have a pastoral staff lunch. <laughs> no, I don't. Right? I'm going to either be dead, but we're not having that meeting here. We kind of think, right? Tomorrow's going to always come. It's just going to be there on and on and on and on and on and on. And the good news, it ain't. And I don't want it to. If we think that this life is it, a life where kids are sick and we say goodbyes, and we lose our jobs, and we sin, and we hate it. This ain't it, folks. Something better is coming. And we let the cares of the world pull our hearts away, or we let the sufferings of this world, they start looming really large. And you know what it does? It, it has this tendency to eclipse what's coming and what the Bible says over and over and over again he's coming how much do you think about that how much do you wake up and just preach to yourself he's coming how much does it stir your affections He's going to come back and finish what he started. This life is fleeting, and we're vapors. We're here today and gone tomorrow. He's coming back, y'all. That's the first point. Second point, until then, we must wait. Until then, we must wait. Now, here's the thing. You have to wait. You can't make Jesus come back. 
Jesus actually says the angels don't know. He says the Son of God doesn't know, only the Father. So what makes us think that we can make things, make him come back? We can't. So we're stuck in a posture of waiting. We're at the mercy of the Father. We've been told not to figure out when he's coming back. You can't figure it out. If somebody tells you when he's coming back, you need to run from them. If somebody tells you to preoccupy yourself with calculating when he's coming back, you don't need the book because Jesus himself says he's coming like a thief. You ever had a thief come on you? I have. We're sleeping in the house at 234 and somebody's rummaging through my car and I don't realize till the next morning at eight o'clock when I look at my camera and he got me, right? He's coming back like a thief. You, you're not called to plan for that, to calculate that. What we are called to do is to wait. That's what James says. These are commands. Be patient. Look at it in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Verse 8, you also be patient. Now, of course, you can wait well and you can wait poorly. Right? We can wait and we can do it well, we can do it poorly. And I actually think that this is the climax of the letter. And I actually think that, 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 that James's letter is shaped around the second return of his half-brother. It looms large from chapter 1 all the way to the end. And he says it explicitly here. But think about these references in James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of God, which God has promised. When will you receive that crown? When Jesus returns. Chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. When will teachers be judged with greater strictness? When Jesus returns. Chapter 5, come now, you rich ones, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will eat your flesh like fire. They will serve as evidence against you, for you have laid treasures up in these last days. When? When does that happen? It happens at the return of Jesus. When what we have stockpiled is wealth, when we have built our lives around wealth and greed, then on that day when Jesus returns. And so I think James actually has the second return of Jesus. It's all over the passage. And he's actually letting them know that the return of Jesus is imminent. And what I'm seeing in this church you don't believe he's coming back. And because this is peripheral to you, you're using your words foolishly, not knowing that every word will be judged. You're showing partiality, not knowing that Jesus says that when I come back, many are first, will be last. And many who are last 
will be first. You're storing up wealth, not knowing that it rots and moth destroy it. We're waiting poorly when we hear the word and don't do the word. We wait poorly when we say we have faith, but we don't have the works to back it up, knowing that our works will be judged, says Paul, and that what endures forever must survive the fire, right? We wait poorly when we don't do the good works of the kingdom. We wait poorly when our highest ambition is to get the bag and to be consumed with money, how to grow it, how to keep it, how to protect it, how to store it up. We wait poorly when we're careless with our words. We wait poorly when we grumble in our passage, verse 9, against one another and we become constant complainers. And see, this isn't just complaining about life in general. This is actually complaining and grumbling against the saints. Did you catch that? That in the next section, James is going to say, if any one of you sick or suffering, let him call the elders of the church and let the elders of the church come and lay hands on him. So when James is talking about the brothers here, he's talking about the body and what he sees in this body is grumbling. They're always complaining. It ain't good enough. I wish we did this. That, was too, that wasn't the right decision. I don't like that. That there's just this grumbling, complaining spirit. And James is actually saying, hey, you're not waiting well, because if you knew that God is at work in the saints, if you knew that the people you're grumbling and complaining against are image bearers, renewed creatures, if you knew what God was up to in the church, you would not be talking about the church in that way. They weren't waiting well. Their words were sabotaging and destroying. But James wants them to wait well. And so what does he say here? What, what, what encompasses waiting well? I think it's two things we could look at in this passage. One, it is patience. And it is establishing our hearts. And we'll look at these separately. First, notice James says, be patient. I don't think this is merely patiently waiting on the coming of the Lord. It's also practicing patience as a virtue as we wait for the Lord. James holds up a farmer. Look, y'all, I'm not a farmer. I grew up in Jackson, and I didn't have families who farmed. So this is like a stretch for me, right? I never went hunting. I wasn't a wildlife dude. Like, I just, I've never killed a deer. I've never, like, I mean, we got a little garden in our house, I mean, at our backyard, but, but farming is so far away from me. And so, Here's what I do know. James wrote this before industrialization. There was no such thing as tractors and center pivot irrigation systems and herbicides and pesticides and insecticides and genetically modified resilient crops that mature twice as fast and grow twice as large. The farmer prepared the field, planted the crops, tended to it, pulled weeds, protected it from other animals, 
But he also had to wait. And it says he waited for one thing. Look at it. It says he waited for the precious fruit of the earth. So that's the first thing. The farmer is waiting on the precious fruit. That's the goal. He's waiting for the fruit. And in waiting for the fruit, notice what he also has to wait for. He has to wait for the, the, the rains, the early and latter rains. So, so get the image. He's waiting on two things. The big picture is the fruit. That's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for what has went in the ground to come up that I might eat of this and sell this and be strengthened by this. That's the telos. That's the goal. But in waiting for the fruit, he also has to microwave, like, like wait on the early and latter rains. And that's important because in the Jewish agricultural cycle, it's not even Jewish, just in the Middle East. Let me preface that. There were two rains. There was a fall rain that wet the ground, that gave the seed a fighting chance to take. And then there was a latter rain, which came in the spring. And the crops needed the latter rain to make it to harvest. And then after the latter rain and the crops flourished, there was a harvest. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 14. At the harvest, they were to harvest it and then take 10%, a tithe of everything they harvested to an appointed place. And it was a feast. It was a commanded feast that you made it through. And now feast. The, the consummation is here. The, 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 the harvest that you were waiting on is here. And here's the thing. They were not just waiting on the harvest. They were waiting on the God of the harvest who sends the rain to be faithful. And they were waiting to go to the place to celebrate and enter into joy. And that's what James is saying. In the way that the farmer is waiting on this future. The consummation, the harvest, we're to be waiting people and we're waiting for Jesus to finish what he started. So here's the thing. I, I tend to move towards the first incarnation. He became man and he came to live and die and go on a cross. That ain't the end of the story. That's the middle of the book, y'all. The last chapter is when he comes home. When he comes to get us and bring us home. Consummation. What James is saying, that's the end. That's the telos. That's the goal. And in the same way that they needed the first rain, and the second rain that comes down from heaven, we need the first coming of Jesus, and we need that second, and then harvest. Be patient. It's coming. But that's not all we're commanded to do. We're commanded to be patient in all things. 
patient with that young Christian, patient with that child, patient with your work, patient with your leaders, patient with your parishioners, patient with yourself and your sin, patient with wealth. It shouldn't grow overnight. Patient with your words. Choose them carefully. Patient in suffering. We're not just waiting on that. That patience spills over and touches everything. But he also says establish your heart. It literally means to strengthen your heart. It's the same word that's used by Jesus when he set his face to Jerusalem, same word, he strengthened his face. And when he set his face towards Jerusalem, the cross was more, became this fixed, not only this fixed reality, but everything he did from that point was in light of that. That idiom, strengthen your heart, is also used of soldiers to stand firm when they're ready for battle. It's still resolved. The verb has the idea of providing a solid support in other words, it's arriving at a place where the return of Jesus isn't periphery. It's what we stand on. It's what we're waiting on. Our lives rest upon it. Our hopes rest upon it. I love the idiom that James uses in verse 9. He says, do not grumble. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. But in the Greek, the door there is plural, which is kind of strange because you can go to other uses of door and it's singular. And one scholar says that this, this is an idiom of eminence. It is the conviction that Christ is not merely behind the single proverbial door of eternity, but in fact, he could walk through any door at any moment. The door to your office is not private. The door to your car is not private. The door to your hotel room is not private. The door to your house is not private. The door to your dorm room is not private. He's watching and Jesus is awaiting. It's being resolved and strengthened in heart by this. This is not the only world there is. He's returning. And he's going to make all things new. And it's letting that be colossal. So this week, um, I went out and took my son with uh, John Hooker and Sarah Barrow, and we delivered toys for families touched by disability. And uh, we sang hymns and songs, and uh, we went to a family's house, and uh, the mother is blind. And the 17-year-old daughter is also blind. And we went, and we probably stayed an hour. And as we were leaving, we prayed. And um, in my prayer, I specifically prayed for the return of Jesus and what's going to happen when he returns. And I said, our weapons will be beat into plowshares. Lion will lay next to lamb. And the lame will walk. And the blind will see. And after we finished praying, the, the little girl, the 17-year-old girl, 
She says, you mean to tell me I'll be able to see? And I'll be able to drive? And I'll be able to see colors? And I say, yes, baby girl, if you trust in Jesus, he is coming back. And he's going to make everything new, even you. You will see again. And you should have saw her joy. That's it right there. It isn't periphery. This is everything. Messiah is returning. And he's making all things new for those who love him and are found waiting and longing. Does your suffering move you to long? It should. He's going to fix it. We wait, but we wait well, patiently, hopefully, faithfully. Last point. How? How are we enabled to wait? It's by resting in the Lord's character and the Lord's faithfulness. Y'all, when the pandemic hit, there was no seminary class on how to pastor in a pandemic. They're just, I mean, we didn't know that. And so I began to read about church fathers in Carthage and Alexandria who pastored through plagues and Martin Luther, who him and his wife did not leave Germany. They stayed and half the people were dying or Charles Spurgeon, who pastored through cholera. And it was a balm for my soul that we have been this path before. And God used the faithful testimony of pastors who stayed the course. That's what James is doing for us. He's actually saying, left to yourself, this is all you see. But if you would just go back and look in church history, you're going to see this resounding pattern that God is faithful, 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 compassionate. And then he says, go, go read the prophets. Just go look at the prophets. Go, go read Job. Go read the book of Job, all 42 chapters of it. You see what James is actually doing? He's actually saying, apart from the written word that depicts to us the character of God, if we're looking out there and not what God has been doing and what God is up to, we will lose heart. But, but he points their gaze back, back to the prophets and back to the book of Job. And I'm going to hone in on Job. When you know the book of Job, I'll sum it up really quickly. Job was a righteous man, feared God, turned away from evil. We're told that he had seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys. We're told that he's the greatest man in the East. And Satan was allowed to test him. And then one day, one servant came after the others. Job, I got bad news. Your cattle is gone. Job, I got bad news. Your camels are gone. Job, I got bad news. Your servants are gone. Job, I got bad news. Your children are gone. 
And then he attacked Job's health. Then he had three friends who I think I would have put him out of my inner circle. Then he lamented his own birth. The entire book is about suffering and enduring and waiting. And then you get to the end of Job 42. And it says the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had. Those 7,000 sheep turned into 14,000. 3,000 camels were 6,000. 500 oxen became 1,000 oxen. 1,000, no, 500 donkeys became 1,000 donkeys. He ended up having seven sons and three daughters. He lived 140 years, and he died an old man full of days. You, you catch the point? That if you look at it in the middle, it looks like it's over. But look at the big picture. The big picture is redemption. And you know what Job says in the middle of all of that? I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God for myself. My heart faints within me that what you get is this man in the middle of catastrophe. He's not losing sight of who's coming. Who's, he's not lost sight of who will stand at the end on the earth and make everything right. And what's also beautiful is look at, look at James's language. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Did y'all catch what he called Jesus at the beginning of this section? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's bookended by the Lord. And what Job is actually saying, the Lord, King Jesus, was involved in the restoration of Job's affairs because it is in his heart to be compassionate and merciful. We believe someone greater than Job has come. The Lord, the Lord came to bear with us in our weakness. The Lord came to atone for our sins of not waiting well. He came to be sin for us that we in him might become righteous. And he is returning again full of compassion and mercy he will not leave us therefore because of who he is and what jesus has been doing before the incarnation what jesus did through the first incarnation what jesus is doing right now interceding and pleading before the father and what jesus will do in the end he will make all things right and because of his character, his likeness, we are empowered to wait. To wait. The best book I read this year is a book entitled, Every Sad Thing is Untrue. And it's written by Daniel Nayeri. His family are Muslims of the strictest order 
And his sister became a believer. And then his mom became a believer. And they fled persecution. And they had it made. She was a doctor, and they owned fields. And he goes on to say that my mom made this trade because Jesus is true. There is a God, and he wants you to believe in him, and he sent his son to die for you. Then this has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven is waiting on the other side. My mother had all the wealth. The love of all the people she helped in her clinic. She was treated like a queen. She was a devout Muslim with the right pedigree. And she's poor now. People spit on her on buses. She's a refuge in places where people hate refuges. With a husband who hits harder than a second degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. This is why we're hiding in Oklahoma. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The whole story hinges on it. May the spirit and the character of God and the coming of Christ make us people who wait, saints. Who wait. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word. And I do pray that again. Help us to wait and to do it well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.